0: He's not a drug trafficker. He's a man who's now running narco militias. So he's learning really hands-on how to be a military commander to vanquish his enemies, but also how to actually be there at midnight when you're stacking that cocaine onto a boat. So across about five or six provinces of Colombia, they say, if we see any policemen, they're to be killed on site. I'm Nicola Tallent. And you're listening to
1: Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He is the Colombian narco who rose from humble origins to become the biggest wholesaler of cocaine in the world. Dario Antonio Usaga, better known by his nickname Otonial, used torture and murder to rise to the top of the feared Gulf clan cartel. But he cut a dramatically different figure earlier this month when he pled guilty to drug trafficking charges and agreed to hand over $216 million in crime proceeds in a New York court. Today I am speaking with the author of Kilo, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Colombian Cartels, Toby Muse, about the impact of the demise of Otoniel. You are listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Toby, thanks for coming. Um, unlike, I suppose, El Chapo and some of his cocaine drug lord contemporaries, uh, Dario Antonio Usaga, also better known as Otoniel, had a quick uh, a quick plea of guilty. Really, this week was that a surprise or
0: or not? I think it was a surprise because, as you say, many of these drug lords, when they are uh, finally in the US justice system. There often seems little benefit for them to accept the charges given the length of the sentence they can hope because they're the top of the top. Remember, this is often can become a rat's game that they start snitching on each other, many members of the cartel system. But when you're at the top of the cartel, there's really no one left to snitch on. So you find that with the case of El Chapo, you find this with the case of Otoniel. So usually they do try to go to trial, fight the case as much as they can. They always end up getting convicted. This was a surprise. So he does accept it. And I think what he's trying to bet on is that he gets a sentence that will at some point let him out of prison. He's 51 years old. So I think he's thinking we understand that the minimum is probably 20 years in prison. The maximum could in theory be a life in prison, although that's not very clear because of the constitutional requirements of extraditing someone from Colombia to the US. For instance, you cannot be extradited from the Colombia to the U.S. and face execution, that is forbidden within the Colombian constitution, and the Colombian constitution, as far as I know, doesn't allow for life in prison with no possibility of ever getting out. But anyway, so that's what he's looking at. So I think Otoniel is taking the bet that he may get 20 years, 25 years, and he will be able to leave when he's 71, 76. One, the judge uh, in this case did say when they announced his guilty plea, they did say. You will be expelled from the U.S. when you finish your prison term. So I think that's the bet in Otoniel's mind.
1: So he could be um, one of the very few people that have been extradited to Colombia to see freedom again. Even though, as he was described by by the Colombian president and others, as po- probably the biggest cocaine baron since uh, Pablo Escobar. Yeah. But where did he did he start from? Uh, Otoniel. And what does Otoniel mean even as a nickname?
0: Otoniel. I mean, uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure where this comes from. Otoniel. Colombia, the criminal underworld and the whole world of the Civil War is filled with these types of nicknames. I mean, and those of us who cover that world are often kind of sharing over a beer the strangest nicknames that we'll hear. For instance, you hear about a gang in Bogota. They're called Lost Chuckies, as in from Child's Play, the horror movie, the Chuckies. That's one. And people will call themselves Homer Simpson. Other people have been called, you know, then you get the traditional ones, the devil, Soulless. It it just runs the whole kind of uh, gamut of uh, the spectrum of these nicknames. So Otoniel, I don't know where that comes from, unfortunately. He grows up in a part of the country called um, Apataro, which is northwestern Colombia. Really, it's known as the banana region. Of Colombia, you go there and you can. I've flown a drone there and you send the drone up and you look over these banana plantations. It's to the horizon, just banana plantations, as far as you can see. And the banana trade has always been in Latin America a very violent, brutal trade. There's something there about an industry that requires. No sort of training or anything. That the, the the labor is so replaceable, and it's men who work with their hands, and it's a very brutal job that makes that industry extraordinarily brutal. There's something about those relations between the banana companies and the workforce, and some of the worst massacres were done by the far right death squad in that zone. It's always been this kind of bubbling zone. There, it's a it's it's hard to explain. So this is where. Dairo Antonio Usaga is born, Turbo, which is a port city. So he grows up in his life in the middle of this political conflict where you see left wing guerrillas, far right death squads, a Colombian state all fighting. And it's for decades now, it's also been a center for drug trafficking. Drug traffickers over the decades have loved to send cocaine out with bananas because containers. That's how shipping containers, that's how you get the tons of cocaine out of the country. It's one thing to send a drug mule on a plane. That drug mule is taking you one kilo, 1.5 kilos. When you get a shipping container, now we're talking tons of cocaine. So that's the world he grew up in.
1: And interestingly, in a, in his own guilty plea, he, he sort of referred to himself as a child soldier, in effect, mm-hmm. that he was he was brought into one of these paramilitary groups, which were possibly state-sanctioned, to some extent, these right-wing paramilitary groups, or would I be correct in saying that?
0: It's a tricky one exactly to kind of exactly get to the heart of what that relationship was. What we can absolutely say without fear of contradiction is parts of the army, parts of the political class, parts of the business class cooperated with these far-right death squads in order to stage a dirty war against mainly... Um, left-wing politicians, left-wing social activists and left-wing guerrillas. So exactly how far the Colombian state was involved in that as a matter of policy is an ongoing debate. But we can definitely say there are generals in the Colombian army who participated in atrocities, who oversaw massacres of civilians working with the far-right paramilitaries.
1: And so that that is the world in which he grew up. Uh, but ultimately, a lot of these... Uh, Political organisations and maybe not dissimilar to an extent in, in in Northern Ireland, they lapsed into becoming primarily criminal and drug trafficking groups. Um, he where where did he stand in the Pablo Escobar days? Was he a, a foot soldier at that point, or or do we know?
0: Fifty-one, so he would have been born in, say, ninety. He would have been in his twenties during the. Yeah, really, he's he he just misses. I would say probably the height of the Pablo Escobar days. His first um, entry into this world is joining a actual Maoist left-wing guerrilla group. This is called the EPL, which is the Popular Liberation Army. That was always a strange organization. Of it was the smallest of the three large left-wing guerrilla groups in Colombia. And they've had a very strange history that they did, after a while, end up kind of abandoning the politics and really getting into cocaine trafficking. Again, this was always the balance with these organizations in Colombia, as I think you mentioned. You have these groups that they start to trafficking cocaine in order to raise funds to push the revolution, but after a few years, the revolution has essentially been forgotten. And now it's just cocaine trafficking for the sake of cocaine trafficking. And that's what happened with the EPL. They also had a history of violence with another one of the leftist groups, which meant many people left this left wing group, the EPL, and ended up going to the far right paramilitaries, the far right death squads, almost seeking uh, protection from them because one of the largest guerrilla groups, left-wing guerrilla groups, was after them so much. The FARC had a the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Sorry for the names of all yeah, the yeah, different okay. groups, but it gives you an idea of how complex this war is. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, always had a very, a very um, uncompromising attitude to other left-wing groups. You join us, or we extinguish you. And that was their attitude to the EPL. So they would fight the EPL and the fighters from the EPL went to the far right. And that's what you see with um, Otoniel. So he starts in the EPL. The corruption of cocaine is already in the group. And then he goes to the far right death squads, whose political veneer is that they are fighting a left-wing insurgency. In their own words, they're saying, we're fighting the dirty war that legally the police and the army cannot do, i.e. massacres of civilians uh, killing family members of those in the uh, the left-wing groups. But it's always, from its beginning, has been a drug trafficking organization. So one of the biggest drug traffickers in Colombian history is a name that's not often known outside of Colombia, Don Berner. This is the man who essentially runs the city of Medellin after the death of Pablo Escobar until he himself was extradited to the United States in 2008. He was a leading figure in the far right death squad movement and he was a blood trafficker to his, to his DNA. So this is the organization that Otoniel joins. The important thing about this move is that he learns more military tactics. He learns he's, no, he, he's not a drug trafficker. He's a man who's now running narco militias, men and women, mainly men, in uniform who are carrying out complex attacks on their enemies. They're setting up ambushes. They're also the logistics of where's the cocaine going to leave from at night. So he's learning really hands-on how to be a military commander to vanquish his enemies, but also how to actually be there at midnight when you're Stacking that cocaine onto a boat—that's his education there in the right-wing um, uh, death squads.
1: So they became known as the Gulf Clan, and they really filled that vacuum after the the, the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel were torn apart by by the American and the Colombian officials. Did they go on to become to dominate the Colombia's cocaine trade then under people like Otto Otoniel? Yes,
0: I did. There's one step, I just want to go back a little bit. So you have the and I think it's interesting to understand how this evolution of the cocaine trade is in Colombia. So you do have these strictly what we understand the kind of the stereotypical Hollywood style Colombian cocaine cartels of the Medellín, Pablo Escobar and the Cali cartels with the Rodriguez or Juela brothers. Then we move into a new when those when those two cartels collapse, we move into a new era where the biggest cocaine traffickers are the far-right paramilitaries and left-wing guerrilla groups. So the cartels have sort of been eclipsed. Then when the far-right paramilitaries have a peace process with the government, Otoniel is part of that peace process, but he immediately abandons it to start up this new form of drug trafficking that takes the strengths of the cartel system with the strengths of the narco-militia movement and combines them. That's what the Gulf Clan is going to be. This kind of narco-militia as comfortable sitting in the city where it can oversee international drug trade as sending out units of men to conquer territory. That's what the Gulf Clan is going to be. They quickly become the largest cocaine trafficking organization in Colombia. They roll over their enemies. Uh, They start spreading out from their corner of northwest... uh, Northwest Colombia, their tentacles stretch across the country. And to give give an example of how this narco militia movement uh, works, they declare when their leader, it's his brother, is killed in a police ambush. This is 2012, if I'm not wrong. Uh, Otoniel's brother. When he's killed, the Gulf clan declares what they call an armed strike. So across about five or six provinces of Colombia, They say no one is allowed on the roads. No businesses are allowed to operate in the towns we control. And if we see any policemen, they're to be killed on site. I was in one of their zones of control during one of these um, armed strikes. The roads were completely empty. The hotel we were in, they tossed a few grenades at the other end of the street from where we were staying. I was doing a story. The police took us to the local police station in this massive convoy the streets were empty nobody dared show their face and the police inside that police station this was a large police station they had a look of shock on their on their on their faces because they were getting all of the immediate report and it was one policeman killed two more policemen ambushed one other policeman killed police station attacked. It was this readout of all of what was happening during that day. And one of them just looked slightly dazed. And then they got the message out that the Gulf Clan was offering, I can't remember, but it was around about $500 for every policeman killed. And the policeman looked up and he said, this is just like in the days of Pablo Escobar. That was 2014. And it really gave you a sense of the power this organization could
1: hold. But despite that power... Um Atonelli wasn't like uh, uh Pablo Escobar or or some of the others who are very showy, displayed incredible wealth, you know, had Pablo Escobar famously had hippos in his back garden, or so he was another type and almost austere, though with a very, very dark and sinister side, certainly in the in the area of his sexual relations. Um yeah. th- that would be fair.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think there's two things here. Um just to deal with the 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 showiness. That's been the evolution again. It's constantly, we have to understand Colombian cocaine organizations and the whole business is in constant evolution. So in the 80s, by basically the end of the 80s, during the 80s, there's all of these things, Pablo Escobar giving interviews, inviting the press to film him at his big zoo. Standing for
1: election and everything.
0: Yeah. Standing for election. And it was a kind of very swaggering, a kind of Al Capone, a hundred years ago, who would give interviews to the Chicago, um, the Chicago media. But then they they quickly figure out, with the takedown of Pablo Escobar, they figure out that this is self defeating. That there's no point in putting your name your head above the parapet. You just make a target out for yourself. By the time your your face is on the front page of a national newspaper, the countdown has begun. Now the CIA is involved, the DEA is involved, all of these international organizations, the MI6, Interpol, now you're public enemy number one. Why? Yeah. Why do that? And the Mexicans took years to really understand that. The Mexican, even five years ago, you would see the Mexican drug lords giving these interviews, Doing videos, showing off their cars. The Colombians had learned keep a low profile and just keep trafficking. Interestingly, now the Mexican drug traffickers have learned that as well. They no longer give those interviews. Look at what happened when El Chapo did this. Touching on, so yes, he did live. A there, there could life be a few, a, a few,
1: a few Irish guys maybe could take that lesson on board as well, uh, Toby. I'm sure, but
0: yeah, it's just self defeating, and it really shows a kind of. I think the older criminals quite rightly sneer and laugh at this, because if you're digging it up on social media, you're not a serious person. No. You're, I mean, I would say that just, you're not. You're showing off for what? For something that is guaranteed to get you in trouble in six months. And I think this older criminal class is like, this is a clown. So- and. I think that's what, so you do see Otoniel definitely trying to keep as low profile as possible. He hides out in his corner of the country where he can be sure either through threats or bribing people that the people are not going to uh, report on him to the police. You've referenced the darker side of Otoniel, and this is the very disturbing part of Otoniel and his brother. They had a taste for underage girls. They would have these girls of 12, 13, 14, and it was something that that was that they would bring in for parties they would have as lovers. Sometimes it would be a question of the girls in their zone and they would go to the parents and they would offer the parents money. And even more distressing, sometimes we've heard of cases of parents who would take their girls to Otoniel and say, you know, what will you give us for her? We would like to introduce our our daughter to you. And that was this kind of perversion that really did become associated with the leadership of the Gulf Clan. It was something that his lieutenants had, as well, his brother had it, and it actually ended up costing his brother his life because one of these underage girls ended up deciding to work with the police to help them trace, um, uh, to help to, to help the police trace this guy, and that led to the ambush that killed the brother. Yells, one of his lieutenants was called Gavilan. And um, I mean, this is where it just gets really just uh, he was known to have uh, sexually transmitted diseases, Gavilan, and he would have sex with these virgin girls of 13 and infect them. Uh, Thankfully, he was killed. Um, But, you know, this is the kind of this is the The corruption of that
1: corruption that amount of money can bring in an, an impoverished society exactly. you know it's it is it, shocking it drives them sh-
0: mad yeah it, it, uh, it, it really does drive them mad because they've kind of gone exactly it's a, I think this is what people don't get it's the power and the, the limitless power the limitless money drives them mad like an old roman emperor yeah there's just no limits on it no so just normal things are just not enough and you're just you've gone through to the other side you've seen too much and, and you just become some sick twist
1: yeah and obviously this, they they have no fear of the state like the the state sanctions the normal state sanctions that that obviously criminals in right. Ireland or England would have ultimately the the when the state is afraid to send police men out of the police stations how could how could that stop them um so o'toniel obviously he would have amassed. Huge wealth. I think it was a confiscation order of two hundred and sixteen million dollars uh, was was placed on him in the U.S. court. I mean, what did he do with the money? Uh, did he? He didn't live a, an ostentatious life. There was always uh, reports of him driving or <laughs> not driving a donkey, but riding on a donkey instead of a, a Bentley. You know.
0: Exactly. I mean, and that shows the I mean, but then again, that also tells you why the cocaine thrives in Colombia, because certain parts of that country are so underdeveloped that the mode of transport where he is operating around is the donkey. I mean, it's you know, that's what it is, not a country where if you drive the Ferrari, you can just blend in with all of the other Ferrari drivers. So it is this kind of and there's another funny joke about there was another drug trafficker called Rasguño, which I think means scratch. Uh, I think that was the result of a gunfight when he was in his teens and it kind of scratched him or something. He had bought one of the top, uh, this was in, he was a trafficker in the 90s, the early 2000s. He had bought this top sports car. But because the roads in Colombia are so bad, the potholes, he could only drive it like, you know, a kilometre or something. <laughs> then he would have to like kind of slow down and hit the pothole. And then he would rev up to 100 miles, then go down the next kilometre. There's that, the limits of your wealth in a country like Colombia with this terrible infrastructure, this corrupt, this country that's racked by corruption. So Oconellos. Um, you know, he would have all of the creature comforts he would have. He would have his men, his bodyguards would um, would uh, would accompany him, and they would carry stuff. But remember, he was on the CIA's list. The CIA showed through actions that they were involved in hunting him. So his life is this constant movement, night by night, living in different parts, moving around his zone of control with. Three to six rings of security around him, bodyguards, you know, that would stretch out two kilometers, then an inner ring, an inner ring, an inner ring. That's how he would move to make sure he was never taken by surprise. So it does become an irony. One of the richest criminals in Latin America, if not the world, is forced to move around on donkeys. He would have invested a lot of that money in properties. That's always a big thing with these narcos, properties. Uh, It's a very colonial, Spanish conquistador sort of mentality. Land, land, land. That's what they always want. That's the measure in their minds of what a successful man is, to have land, to have these vast tracts of land. So he certainly would have had a lot of farms, and a lot of that would have been money laundered as well. This is one of the hidden parts of the cocaine industry. Where does the money go? Well, it goes into that brand new shopping center center, but you've just taken your family to go have lunch there, where you go buy your clothes or you go to that new restaurant everyone's talking about, maybe there's drug money involved in that. There's a whole thing of, um, I don't know what the word would be in English, but in Spanish it's testaferro, which is the person whose name appears on the property document,
1: but it's just the, the, the figurehead. The front Exactly, the
0: front. So Otoniel's businesses would have stretched across that region, and a number of those businesses he would have been behind. Uh, One final thing I should say about this, because often what happens is, like, for instance, this one of his farms, let's just take, they've seized a farm, or Otoniel is going to give to the Americans a farm he owns, and the Americans will give it to the Colombian government. And what sometimes happens is, is that the Colombian government will give it to small farmers who have been displaced by the violence. They fled the violence 15 years ago. They're essentially homeless. They live in the slums of a city. And then they have this farm. They say, well, look, guys, we're going to give you this this collective of farmers, five families. Here's a huge farm. You guys can live there. And in theory, it all works. But the problem is, is that that zone continues to be a lawless zone. So now you're sending these innocent farmers and you, with all of the good intentions of the world. But because there's not the minimum of law and order, they're now sitting on an ex-drug lord's farm and his employees continue to operate in the zone. And maybe they're not very happy that you're sitting on the farm that their boss once owned. So you see the levels of complexity in this whole problem.
1: Absolutely. So I mean, I think you, so. Otunel is behind bars. That's obviously the end of the cocaine trade in, in Colombia now, Toby. Is it everybody can go home? I mean, obviously. I'm, yes. I'm obviously being sarcastic because the, the cocaine trade has never been uh, bigger. Like we, we in Ireland sometimes think, oh, the, the boom time was the 80s and the 90s, but re- really, Colombia is producing more cocaine than ever. Uh, uh, would that be f- accurate to say?
0: Absolutely. So what we're living through at the moment is we're living through, I mean, the the golden age of cocaine. There has never been as much cocaine rolling around the world as right now. Colombia, the world is producing around 2,000 tons of pure cocaine. That's a lot of cocaine. I mean, that's a lot of cocaine. And what we're seeing is, funnily enough, my understanding, again, I do want to be clear about when I step outside my zone of kind of knowledge I'm much more focused on the production in Colombia of cocaine. But my understanding is is that the price of cocaine hasn't really changed for 20 years in, say, Ireland or London. It may
1: even have fallen, actually, in in, in 20 years, maybe even. Imagine with everything, inflation
0: going up, everything. But cocaine is, as you say, going down. And what we do know is that the that purity is on the up. I remember reading something in London. This was probably about 10 years ago. They did a study that showed probably the gram of cocaine anyone purchased. There was about a third of cocaine in it. 66%, two thirds was just Filler, speed, whatever. Now we understand that because there's so much cocaine out there, there's no point filling it with anything else. You increase the purity. We are seeing uh, overdoses, uh, a rise in overdoses. We're also seeing certainly here a problem, which is fentanyl being used, sometimes mixing with the cocaine, which is having disastrous effects. There was a story out of New York. I think it happened sometime last year when a dealer didn't even understand that his batch had been um, contaminated with fentanyl. There was fentanyl in what he was peddling directly to his clients, and three or four of his users died in one night. Uh, It was just awful, this awful. uh, But cocaine is, it's not just that there's more cocaine out there, but cocaine is reaching parts of of the world it's never really existed in before. I was filming a documentary a year ago in Afghanistan, and someone was telling me that before the takeover of the Taliban, you could get a gram of cocaine, three hundred dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. But it was possible. Afghanistan. We're hearing reports places like Saudi Arabia
1: yeah. now have cocaine. No, I read amount. I read I read a, I read a report on, on Africa. Like not obviously cocaine has always been trafficked through Africa, but the level of usage in Africa has absolutely skyrocketed. So I mean, uh, it is boom time, and in Europe, there's just no doubt about the 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 record levels of seizures. Um, that just have never been seen before. So Otoniel, I think it was described in one of the papers as the last big beast in the, the, the cocaine trade in Colombia, but presumably it's not ending. What is going to happen next or, or what is the situation on the ground?
0: Well, we are as we are. I mean, we are struggling with this moment of more cocaine than ever before. And obviously that is financing and funding not just in Colombia, but also criminal organizations in Europe, in Ireland, in London, in France, in Spain. It's making those gangs that trafficking in cocaine stronger than ever, richer than ever, able to expand. We're seeing that in Colombia. These organizations are making all of this money. What comes next? Well, we do have something interesting going on in Colombia at the moment. We have the election of a new government. This is a, um, a left-wing president, the first left-wing president really in Colombia's history, elected, and his name is Gustavo Petro. He's a former guerrilla of a very, um, a, a very interesting guerrilla movement called M19. Uh, he demobilized and has been one of the most successful senators for decades now in the Colombian Senate. He recently, he became president last year in his opening presidential inaugural speech when he took possession um, in this big opening speech, kind of announcing, um, you know, his president, uh, it, it, you know, uh, the day he took power, he gives this speech and he announces that uh, it's time to end the war on drugs because of the massive amounts of damage it's done, not only to Colombia, but also the rest of Latin America, let alone the damage it's done to the consuming countries. But his focus is the terrible damage it's done to Colombia. And he says, it's time to find an alternative. So what he wants to move away from is the idea of basically what we've been doing for the last 50 years, constant trying to destroy the supply of this drug, a cap or um, a, a cap or uh, pro, a capo strategy. The capo strategy essentially just means keep going after the heads of the cartels, try to cut the head off and hope that that will succeed. Never really has succeeded in the past, but that's been, and he said he wants to do something. So I think what he wants to do is, the m- big thing He we know he wants to do is, he wants to work with the farmers, the more than 100,000 farmers who grow the coca bush. That's the basis of cocaine. This bush, this ugly green bush that's turned the leaves become cocaine through a number of processes. He wants to work with the farmers to help them find legal alternatives. So to, um, you know, to guide them, give them money so they stop growing coca and they can raise chickens, raise pigs or, you know, grow coffee. That's going to be his big thing. He wants to move away from more stick, kind of attacking the farmers and much more of the carrot work with them. And that has shown to be the most successful way of getting people off the coca um, business. On the other side, he also has this plan called Total Peace, where he wants to engage in dialogues with pretty much every single um, armed group in Colombia, every single large armed militia, narco militia. So there's many of these but there was a big peace process in 2016 when the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, when they laid down their weapons. What happened was, is that there were dozens of new guerrilla groups, smaller guerrilla groups, kind of grew up
1: Localized, in the space. The
0: FARC, it, uh, exactly. To replace the FARC and take control of the cocaine trade. So now this president has said he wants to negotiate with all of these groups, the total peace. But this is controversial when it comes to the Gulf Plan. The reason being is that Colombia has had a rule, an unwritten rule, but it's been kind of stuck to, sometimes broken, but not often, you don't negotiate with criminals. Yeah, You negotiate with political organizations, that's something, but with criminal organizations. Now, the Gulf Clan claims to have a veneer of political, they claim to be a political organization, they say that you know they're fighting for a better Colombia, but it's a veneer. There's yeah. not really serious politics there. So this is controversial, but that's where we're at at the moment. The Gulf Clan has said it wants to negotiate. They've talked about kind of wanting to get into a ceasefire with the government. The government has said it's open to negotiate. So that's where we stand at the moment. At the moment, it's kind of this calm of, is something going to come out of this? That's the hope uh, across Colombia, that this government can make a peace. But it does have,
1: many people are, are doubting. Well, it's it's a very interesting point. Uh... Uh, plan because whatever has been happening before clearly isn't working and you know why not try something different and um, so thanks Toby that was that was great and uh, I really appreciate it and we'll probably get back to you again uh, when when Otoniel is sentenced and uh, it'll probably be Nicola then so a bit a bit more glamour uh, oh, on no, your next
0: call it's always a pleasure talking to you guys thanks very much Toby thanks a lot take care